0: Part 21, Family Feud. I hate Cal Ripken Jr. and his Baltimore Orioles. Well, I tried to. We're about the same age and had a secret feud going on for about 30 years. His dad tried to end it in Detroit one time with an olive branch. But you know how feuds go. The bad blood started when we were little kids. My favorite team, the Twins, lost to the Dodgers in the 65 World Series. Cal Jr.'s favorite team, the Orioles, beat Los Angeles in 66. A few years later, it got more personal when his O's stole the 1969 and 70 American League championships from my Twins with crooked umps and some snot-nosed pitchers named Palmer, Cuellar, and McNally. Then, in 1982, after Cal Jr. had grown into a handsome, steely, blue-eyed glory boy with an MLB pedigree in an East Coast market, he snatched the Rookie of the Year Award from the hands of Kent Herbeck. Kent was born just down the road from me. We grew up together in the shadows of Bloomington, Minnesota's Metropolitan Stadium. Herbeck's Kennedy Eagles baseball team faced our Rosemount High Squad in 1978. Everyone from our era and area acts like they know Herbeck. I was close to Kent, about 15 feet away, with my fingers hooked in chain link, watching him bat against our ace, who was a Division One pitching prospect. When folks get to name-dropping, I tell them about the matchup. Our guy Ralph faced Herbie twice, I say. Struck him out. Both times? They always ask. No, just once. What happened a second time? We're not sure. The ball hasn't landed yet. The hardest part of feuding with Ripken and the Orioles was that they were historically known as good guys who espoused the Oriole way. A commitment to fundamentals that drew players and fans who were like-minded. To use a hipster word, Baltimore had authenticity. If I had known of Mike Rowe during the feud, he's the guy from Dirty Jobs and the way I heard it. I would have tried to hate him too. He grew up in Baltimore near Cal, and they're both close to the same age as Ken Herbeck and me. We all shared childhoods learning from parents, grandparents, and coaches about the authenticity of hard work, fundamentals, personal responsibility, and commitment to others. And we all became famous. Well, except me. As kids, when none of us were famous, the fundamentals thing must have been getting to me because for a while... I thought I might be inner harboring a subconscious soft spot for the city of Baltimore, their people, and their ball club. Then, Major League Baseball started building new, more modern, and profitable places for big leaguers to play. They started in Bloomington by tearing down our beloved Met and moving the Twins to a Teflon bubble of a football stadium in downtown Minneapolis called Metrodome. Guys like me and Herbie could sense what was coming next. Cal Jr. and Mike Rowe got a palace called Oriole Park at Camden Yards. People say Camden Yards is the first retro ballpark. It's not retro. It's authentic too. It's tucked into a cranny of Baltimore not far from the famed harbor. A cannon shot from where Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem. The exterior was crafted to fit within its old warehouse neighbors, and the interior was shaped with equally unique character. The ball yard sits precisely on the childhood stomping grounds of Babe Ruth, for goodness sake. Every baseball park built since is a knockoff. What's not to love about? Baltimore, Camden Yards, those pitchers, Earl Weaver, Frank Robinson, Boog Powell, Brooks Robinson, Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken, and the Oriole Way. A tainted childhood, that's what. The idyllic summer pastimes of Cal Ripken Jr., Mike Rowe, and the kids of Baltimore, Maryland in the 1960s and 70s, often came at the expense of me. Kent Herbeck, and our Bloomington buddies. I carried the emotional scars for decades. I met Cal Sr., kind of, at the now-defunct Ritz-Carlton in Dearborn, Michigan, not far from the headquarters of Ford Motor Company. Ford sponsored the nearby Senior PGA Championship Golf Tournament where I was working, and I had to stay at the Ritz because it was the host hotel of the event. And in spite of the fact that Cal Ripken and those Orioles, who were in town to play the Tigers, were staying there too. Cal Sr. was coaching third base, and his other son, Billy, was playing second base for Baltimore, next to his older brother who played shortstop. I spent eight ritzy nights working with hotel staff to plan and administer customer hospitality events and was on a first-name basis with Penny in the lounge where our gatherings were held. One afternoon, I told her I was looking for something to do other than watch ESPN that night and asked if there was a shuttle to the baseball game so I could experience Tiger Stadium and, subconsciously, see all those Ripkins in one place. There was just me, Penny, Penny and a sun-baked guy who looked more like a farmer than a Ford Motor Company executive in the lounge. He seemed to be almost hiding as he stood leaning on a pillar at the far end of the bar, near the little cubicle that housed bus trays, folded napkins, and silverware. The man heard her conversation and waved Penny down. They shared a few inaudible words before she returned. Mr. Ripkin would like you to be his guest at the game tonight. You can pick your ticket up at Will Call. My head shot down toward him, then back to Penny, where it settled with a quizzical look. That's Cal Sr., she whispered. The feud had been dormant for a while, and I figured he was going to come down to sweet-talk me into burying the hatchet, once and for all. But he just leaned out from the pillar... Gave me a quick, there you go, head bob, then went back to sipping a small tap beer. Silent Cal Coolidge had nothing on Ripken Sr. I ended up on ESPN Sports Center that night. The seat for Mr. Ripken was right above the dugout, but I got up after a couple of innings to explore the house of Hank Greenberg, Charlie Gehringer, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Mark Fidrich. Mickey Lolich, Al Kaline, and a guy named Cobb. The Orioles were in the hunt that year, but the legendary Tigers were not, so the outfield seats were empty. I walked to the top deck of center field and stood watching with nobody but a hot dog and a beer when Chris Hoyles launched a bomb to upper left center. Later that night, during TV highlights, it wasn't hard to pick myself out from the three of us. Earlier in the evening, it wasn't hard to walk over and pick up a souvenir home run ball from the Baltimore Orioles, courtesy of Mr. Hoyles and Cal Ripken Sr. One would think an unsolicited peace offering, TV cameo, and home run souvenir would be enough to end the feud, but I hadn't reached the closure on the wounds of youth. The Ripkin feud did quiet down for a few years after the Treaty of Detroit, however. Cal Jr. didn't bug me, and I didn't bug him. There was a later flare-up, though, when I happened to share a patio with another Oriole great, Mike Boddicker, who's a coincidental next-door neighbor to a childhood brother like Buddy. I tried to hate Boddicker, too. His enduring small-town boy charm was just one more gentle twist of a knife from the nest of the hard-to-hate Oriole flock. But life marched on in our family after Cal Sr.'s olive branch. And a few years later, in September of 1995, we were expecting a baby. Mary Beth had complications that put her on bed rest for three months, day after long, hot day was followed by another, each filled with incessant coverage of the first O.J. Simpson trial. The media sideshow set all tragedy aside as it made celebrities of the prosecution, defense, witnesses, and even the judge. The West Coast Circus was as far from the authenticity of the Oriole Way as one could get. Newspapers were still the nation's journals in 95, and every rag in the country led with an OJ headline for 473 days of the 474-day trial. But Mary Beth was having a baby, and we managed to escape the onslaught of so-called news for a few days to welcome our daughter, Mary Murphy, at 8.07 p.m. on September 7th. Mary Beth's mom, Jane Ann, had come to town to help ease us through the transition to a whole new life. She cooked meals, tidied up, and dutifully stacked the mail and newspapers the three days we languished at the hospital after complications at birth. As I sorted through the pile of bills, direct mail advertising, and O.J. Simpson headlines, I came across the first congratulatory gift after the birth of our daughter, it was another olive branch from the Ripkin family, this time from Cal Jr. himself. I was thankful Grandma had saved the newspapers, so we could honor the tradition of saving documentation from the date of a child's birth. But I shuddered at what empty sensationalism would welcome our daughter to this world. What petty, self-serving disagreement would the tabloids cling to on this day that was so special to me? In big, bold letters that pushed courtroom antics to an inside fold, the headline on the day of our daughter's birth read, 2,131 Ripken Makes Baseball History Cal Ripken Jr. had played shortstop in every single Baltimore Orioles game from May thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two, to September sixth, nineteen ninety-five, two thousand one hundred thirty-one games in a row, and won more than the original Iron Man, Lou Gehrig. He did what thousands before him could not do. He bumped sensationalism from the front page, in an unprecedented act of perseverance. Ripken's streak might have ended on July 26, 1993 with the birth of his son, Ryan. But the Orioles conveniently had the day off. Cal Jr. also played with a broken nose and several other maladies during a well-earned Hall of Fame career. During the streak, the Yankees played Derek Jeter and 18 other shortstops against the Orioles. I was touched and humbled at the lengths to which Cal Ripken Jr. went to break the 30-year feud. My lone contribution was to let go of a tainted childhood by giving a souvenir home run ball to a kid in Detroit wearing an Orioles jersey. In 2001, when Cal homered in the last of his 19 All-Star games, I got a bit choked up for my old pal. I love Cal Ripken.